0: Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for tuning in and welcome to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm your host, Francesco, podcasting from the cozy office of my company, Ametix Technologies, where we use machine learning and artificial intelligence to empower people and organizations. Today, I'm not alone. In fact, I'm with Hadil De Armas, senior software engineer at Disney and author of VideoFlow, a Python framework that facilitates the quick development of complex video analysis applications and other serious processing-based applications in a multiprocessing environment. That's a lot of words, I know. I've inspected the repository on GitHub and some of the capabilities of this framework, and I must say that it's really, really interesting. So stay with us because Hadil is going to tell us a lot more than what you can read from the GitHub repo. Hadil, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much, Francesco, for having me here. Yes, I am very happy, and I'm sorry for the long long description to video (laughs) vlog.
1: That's cool. Uh, I mean, we all need to uh, explain more uh, than less. (laughs) So, uh, Jadiel, could you please introduce yourself to the listeners of Data Science at Home?
0: Yes, yes. So, I I am Jadiel. I work for Disney. I I have been doing this for at least five years, working at Disney. I, I am a very young guy. I came to the to, to the U.S. a while ago, I, I was born in Cuba. I studied math and computer science, and uh, after doing that bachelor's degree, I went to grad school, and then I came here to, to live in Florida and to work for Disney after, you know, a couple of experiences at Bloomberg in New York and, and, and other places.
1: Cool. And uh, and so now you are based in Florida. In fact, you are based in Orlando, where I was, in fact, one year ago.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, that's correct. Small world. So, when did you start doing data science? So back in two thousand nine, in school, I, I had a research opportunity, uh, a summer research opportunity at another school, and this research was about information retrieval and natural language processing. And uh, that opportunity was great for me. It opened my, my, my world to data science and to machine learning and artificial intelligence. And uh, since then, I, I haven't done much outside of data science.
1: Interesting. So what exactly do you do at Disney? If you can, of course, talk about some of your work.
0: Yeah, I, I cannot say too much, but I think I can say enough. So I we work in solving interesting problems. The the team is called Emerging Tech. So the name says, says a lot about it. I have been working in problems related to natural language processing, but mostly computer vision. And in computer vision, we work in object detection and segmentation, object tracking, image painting. Uh, you know, I, I cannot say too much about it, but let's say that we are very interested in detecting human actions and behaviors in video. And also we are trying to use computer vision for, uh, for augmented reality, because augmented reality is a big push uh, inside the company too.
1: I see. And uh, so now let's move a bit to video flow, which is your most recent work, if, I, if I'm not wrong and uh, it also gained the attention of the community of data scientists in particular those interested in computer vision. So what is video flow?
0: So video flow belongs to the engineering side of data science. It uh, it allows the end user to compose computational flows to process and to analyze live video streams in real time. Uh, Most of the time obviously these computations are machine learning models so It is great for applications such as object tracking, action detection, crowd movement analysis, or any kind of problem that you can attack it using a composition of computations that can be expressed as a directed acyclic graph, where the nodes obviously represent the, the computations and the edges in the graph represents the dependencies between or among those computations. So this is pretty
1: much in line with what the, the folks at TensorFlow have been doing, if I'm if I'm not
0: wrong. Yes, yes. TensorFlow also uses the directed acyclic graph express, you know, the, the model of expressing computations as a directed acyclic graph, because it's very expressive. It lets you accomplish a lot of things, a lot of flexibility.
1: I mean, likewise for Dask, I guess, and also Spark jobs, all, all you know, things that use the same concept behind behind the, the computational complexity so what, yes. what? Okay. So why did you create the video flow and is there any particular let's say painful problem that it solves
0: yes it's uh, you know the, the engineering side of video processing is not a fun part it's not the fun side it's, it gets complex especially when you need to process a video on real time uh, when you are when you have a process that has multiple models and dependencies between them, and on top of that, you need to process the, the, the video in real time. And obviously, these computations, you need to coordinate between them. And that is something that is not completely trivial, so it has got to, to, to be done. And usually, data scientists, they they don't have the skill set to do this because uh, they want to stay focused on, on, on the data science side of it. Uh, so this resolves that issue for them. And the other thing that I have noticed is, you know, sometimes the models are slow. So you have bottlenecks in your flow. You, you want to process a video at 30 frames per second, but your pipeline only can process it at 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 frames per second. So you have got to add parallelism to your process and coordinating with parallelism also is another uh, thing that you need to do. And video flow takes care of all these things for you
1: it's true i mean i agree with you when you say that data scientists are not really data engineers and you know they want to take care of the model aspect the modeling aspect you know forgetting about the rest so it's always good to have tools like like the one you created that indeed fills that gap um now you know when you say you have like 30 fps 30 frames per second in a i would say a regular video now not even a high definition one am i right i'm not I'm yeah not that's so correct high definition
0: i think is 60.
1: exactly so if you have you know 30 fps is already one order of magnitude higher than what you know a, a, a trivial machine learning model can process so how do you solve i mean i'm not asking you the technical details about how is it possible to solve these things? But in fact, you you need a lot of parallelization there.
0: Yeah, am I right? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. So you know, one thing, one way to solve it is uh, get a cheaper model. But sometimes that's not an option. You have got to add parallelization. So what you do is, hey, you we have uh, four five, four GPUs for example available. We have some other CPUs, uh, and you want to run in parallel. One option is to do a do it in a round robin fashion. Hey, in, in a round robin way, let's distribute the task of frames, and that way you keep the order of the video. But that's not the most optimal option because your GPUs might be running at different speeds. That means that one of them will be waiting while the other finishes. So this is the best way, the optimal way to do it. You know, every GPU should be working all the time, non-stop. They cannot be your bottleneck here. So that's what you do. You have a queue, an input queue where the GPUs are reading from that queue, and they that's all they do. They each GPU lives in a different process, and each GPU has an independent output queue. But they all read from the same queue, and they they just read from there. They read, they process, they write to the output queue, and they go back and read, process, write, non-stop. Now the problem here is how do you order those outputs from those GPUs? That's the trick here, because uh, they, they, they are working at their own speed, they are not caring about order. So what you do is, you have a different queue that is called an ordering queue. And then every time a GPU reads from the input queue, that GPU needs to register in the ordering queue from which, what frame it read, and, and it places in that ordering queue, and then it continues processing. So now, when you want to reorder all this processing, you just go to the ordering queue and you read it. You read it in order, and that ordering queue tells you from what output queue read the next frame that you need to reorder your your processes, your your stream of video. So you know it's better with a diagram, but I think uh, I think that's the best I can do over audio. So,
1: yeah, no, but I want to point out that this is a this is not a trivial problem because you know if you are if you want to parallelize. On, on video frames, you know, that would be trivial if the video frames were all independent from each other, right? That's correct. So you would just, yeah, so you would just distribute them across all the GPUs that you have available and that's fine. Problem is that you have to maintain a time consistency and so they are depend, you know, each frame depends on the previous frame or previous frames.
0: Yeah, you need to keep the order of what's going on here, you, you cannot lose right. it.
1: At all. And so that's where the major of the complexity comes from. Yeah. Cool. So, is there a third problem that you solve with, uh, like, what are the three issues, the three problems that you solved with, uh, with VideoFlow then, if you want to summarize for our listeners?
0: Yes, so synchronizing the dependencies that you have in the graph computation. The second issue that we solve is uh, parallelization over a stream of videos when you need to keep the order. We do this seamlessly and uh, that's a great thing. The other problem that we don't solve, but that you know, we are trying to solve, is, uh, it has to do with accuracy and optimization and automated, suppose you have a bottleneck, how do we automatically remove it? You know, you, you have resources, you have computational resources, you have an accuracy target that you want to reach, and you have a speed that you want to reach. You want to reach 30 frames per second at a given accuracy with a given computational resources. Is that possible? video flow should be able to do that for you automatically. And that's the third problem that uh, we don't solve yet, but we are very close to solve.
1: This is very interesting because, in fact, you can fix a variable and see what video flows gives you for the other two. You have kind of three degrees of freedom in your problem. And so video flows supports you in deciding what the accuracy that you should expect with this or that resources or with this or that FPS support. Exactly. Nice. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so you know, it cannot do magic. If 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 your model doesn't go higher than ninety percent accuracy, we, we cannot we cannot get it better than that. But if you have a model at ninety percent accuracy and you have a model at eighty percent accuracy, obviously there is this trade off in in the computer vision community, in, in the models that usually the, the more accurate models are the slowest ones. Sure. So mm. you need more computational resources for that. Of course. But VideoFlow should be able to, hey, we have this accurate model. But I need to process at 30 frames per second. What kind of computational resources do I need to get me there? And VideoFlow can, can do that. Nice. I'm,
1: I'm pretty curious about some, you know, real numbers. For example, given an object tracking model, this can be whatever. I'm just mentioning something that comes up to my mind right now. Now, in, yes. imagine you have an object tracking model at Disney and a video stream at, let's say, 30 FPS. So, okay. what type of hardware would you need to process, for example, with hundred percent accuracy and no missed tracked objects?
0: Got it. Okay, I don't know if I can give you hundred percent accuracy, but let's. Uh, okay, le- let me let me le- let us see. Let's let's work with the example. Let's let's go for it. So, you have thirty frames per second. Let's assume now that you have uh, a model that is very accurate and uh, but. Because it's very accurate, it's a little bit slow, and you can work only at uh, let's say 10 frames per second mm-hmm. on a GPU. That same model running in the in the CPU gives you about one to two frames per second. Let's speak two mm-hmm. two frames per second. So now you have you have to reach 30 frames per second. You have the model at 10 frames per second. Video Flow will and you have two GPUs in your system. This is what Video Flow will do. Video Flow will allocate that model to the two GPUs and it will allocate it also into five cores of your, of your CPUs, which is possible, GPU machines have a lot of cores. So you have now seven models allocated into seven different processes, and that gives you the 30 frames per second that you need. You are getting 20 frames per second from the models allocated in your GPU, and you are getting uh, 10 frames per second from the five models allocated to your CPUs. Uh, walking in parallel and and scaling linearly and that is you know that assumption is correct it's there is not much overhead in the scaling here uh, with video flow it, it should scale very linear uh, as you keep adding processes to your to your pool of processing
1: sure well the only thing is probably the pressure on memory since you will have to uh, copy the memory, and uh, you know every process will leave in its own. Yes, you
0: definitely that's you definitely need a big machine <laughs> yeah. and 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 f- for these things.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, but RAM is uh, cheaper and cheaper now. So. <laughs> yep. Okay. What are some of the peculiarities of this library? Can you summarize the high-level architecture? I know that it's not you know it's not easy on a podcast. It's much easier with a with a diagram. Probably there is some in your repo, <laughs> in your uh, readme uh, markdown uh, description. So how you know how does it work on a very high level and uh, and if you guys have a roadmap or what's the future of VideoFlow?
0: Yes, yes, of course. So this is how it works right now. Uh, you define a, your flow in source code as a graph. Then VideoFlow will compute a topological sort of that graph, and that topological sort is passed to an execution engine. That execution engine uh, each node in your computation graph around as a task, and it will create cues for communication between the tasks. We mentioned queues already when we were talking about the parallelism mm-hmm. that is needed. So it creates the communication cues and all the synchronization that is needed, and then it will allocate each task to run as an independent process. The tasks that it can allocate to the GPUs will allocate them to the GPUs when it runs out of GPUs, then it will start using the the CPUs in the machine. And it's smart, it knows what, what, you know, it it will allocate the the most computational expensive tasks into the the GPUs as possible. And then all the coordination between tasks is is done using queues, logs, and semaphores. And then, obviously, when you define the flow, you have three types of nodes in that flow. And this is something natural from the application side point of view, you have uh, producers, processors, and consumers. And your producers are the sources of the the flow. They are the ones that generate the data to place in the flow, like they they read from a video stream or from a Kafka queue or from a file, and they place that data into the flow. Then you have the processor nodes that will be doing the heavy lifting and the computations. And they they just simply get input and return output and place it in in the queues and the queues take care of there is another system that takes care of the synchronization and taking that data where it needs to go, and then you have the consumer nodes and they they just consume the data they are the sinks of the graph they have no children they they simply get the results of the computation and they store them somewhere, so you know. At, Uh, those are the big highlights of what the how the the system works and
1: so what's the current version uh, is 0.2
0: yeah so regarding versioning we are at 0.2.2 that's a very low number but we are uh, we have a roadmap all the way to 1.0 starting from 0.3 we are adding a couple of more models uh, to the to the framework we are automating this this thing that I talked to you about uh, automating the detection of bottlenecks and automating the, the 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 resource allocation even better for more complex situations that is coming up the reporting and and visualization of your flow this is something very important because you want to visualize what is going on you don't want to just read the logs in your in your of your flow of what's going on so we are going to implement a visualization like TensorBoard for TensorFlow. A visualization thing also, so that you can visualize how your flow is running, where are the bottlenecks, etc. And day after version 1.0, we are going to go the distributed way. We want to just not implement video flow for a multiprocessing environment. We want to use it in a cluster of machines.
1: How many people are involved with this? I mean, I know it's open source, so it's always difficult to count. how I many developers are involved, but... Do you have uh, let's say fixed time developers next to you?
0: I do not have I don't have that luxury yet. We have obviously a world we have uh, <laughs> me and a couple of other uh, co-workers we are working on it in our free time whenever we can. My free time is uh, is a lot because I am giving a lot to the to the library. So I have and those other two people are also pretty involved in it. Uh, and also we have the community. We have uh, a couple of people that have been putting some changes into, into it, too, from, from outside of the, the company. But, you know, contributions are always welcome. And the first contribution that people can do is just use it and, and, and see how they like it.
1: Exactly. And indeed, we will report the, the repository in the show notes of this episode so even the large community of data science at home can enjoy and eventually participate to the, or contribute to the development for sure. Um, speaking about the models, which models did you include in the library so far? You know,
0: you can bring your own models into the library, but also the library has models that you can use from from for of the shelf without having to do too much. We have classification, we have object detection, we have object segmentation, and we have human pose estimation. And these models, uh, all of them, have been trained either using the COCO dataset or the open images data set that was published by by Google recently. Well, does it depend also on TensorFlow, or can
1: it abstract from
0: that? OK, so all the models that we have implemented, those that I just mentioned to you, we are using TensorFlow for them. Mm. Uh, That doesn't mean that you cannot bring your own uh, deep learning preferred library into the mix, because all you have to do is wrap your code and wrap your library around a processor uh, uh, interface, and you should be good to go. Obviously, uh, you would have to do a little bit of more, probably at 30 more lines of code than what you would need to do with TensorFlow. But after that, once you have done it once, you don't have to repeat it. So right. yes, yeah, in, in that sense, it's a uh, uh, deep learning library agnostic.
1: What are the biggest challenges with video analysis? I mean, I know that it's, it's a very long story there. There is a lot of research going on. But if you want to summarize, you know, the, probably the two biggest challenges that you have seen so far with, uh, with computer vision and in particular video uh, analytics.
0: The first thing that happens with video is that video adds a time dimension. And that time dimension is the one that will cause you all the trouble. On the engineering side, you want to do real-time video analysis. And as we have mentioned, this is a, a challenge because you need powerful computing power to achieve this. On the other hand, computations in powerful servers in the cloud is not the optimal way of doing things because you should compute close to the edge close to where the video is coming from is possible because you don't want to overload your network with video. So you have these two interests fighting each other there. You need a lot of computing power, but you also should compute as close to the edge as possible. So for the engineering side, that's I believe uh, the biggest challenge that you have got with video. Now on the modeling side, time also adds the problem here. And the problem here is time coherence. Time coherence is a big problem. When we watch a video, we automatically, if there is a little bit of jumping going on, we see it, the, the brain sees it, even if it's very little. So when you build a model for, for video processing, for example, a segmentation model, the segmentation model usually treats all the frames independently. It, uh, you know, it, it, gives you the segmentation for this frame, and then for the next frame, it gives you another segmentation. These two frames are related by time, but the model doesn't know it. The model just outputs a segmentation mask that you can use somewhere else, but that segmentation mask is usually not coherent uh, with the previous one. So uh, time coherence is a big challenge for video analysis, especially from the modeling side of it.
1: So uh, you have mentioned already that you guys are moving towards version one, which will be, I guess, a big improvement. But what does video what, what VideoFlow still doesn't solve, like at at this date? Yeah, first of all,
0: VideoFlow do not does not work in a distributed environment with multiple machines. That's one thing that we want to solve. So also VideoFlow right now at this moment does not self adapt to changing. To changing computational demands in the flow. Uh, something that we will visit around very soon. Right now, if you know at some point you are receiving a little bit more uh, load of processing that you need to do, you have got to stop the flow and restart it with uh, more computational resources. And this is not optimal, so we obviously want to solve this as soon as possible. And uh, mostly you know, uh, there are other things that are a little bit more complex that we want to solve. But these two, I, th- I think, are pressing things that are not there, but should be there already.
1: So, in fact, you guys want to in- insert something called, co- you know, the cold start, basically. Yep,
0: yeah, yeah, that's correct. And now, uh, Redio,
1: it's, uh, it's time for the philosophical question, something that I ask to everyone uh, at the end of the interview is like uh, you know about the future of, uh, of AI and uh, about the future of, of machine learning so my question for you is what domains you expect practitioners will focus in the next let's say five years from now
0: got it I you know I, this is a very broad question I will I will I will talk about computer vision uh, if that is okay with you and I know there is no right or wrong answer, and we are not prophets, so we cannot predict the future, so whatever I say, don't, don't, don't put your money in the bank because of it. But uh, something that I have noticed in practice is that making smaller models is very important right now, and people are focusing on that because we want to run the models in, in edge devices, in phones, we want to run them everywhere. So making smaller models that are as accurate as the big models that we have right now is a, an active area of research that I believe will keep moving uh, a lot. So image synthesis and generation is also a very hot topic. Video synthesis and generation is obviously more difficult because of what we talk about, the time coherence problems. Uh, but it's also that you know it, it's something that people will focus on too. In robotics, I see a lot of integration between vision, sound, and touch for a better understanding of what is going on. Uh, For example, if you want to do a picking robot to pick fruits from from trees, it's not just vision. You want to add touch to know if the fruit is ready for picking uh, and other things. So it's it's a very interesting problem.
1: So if I, if you speak for yourself, like what's the the you know the problem that you think you will be focusing in the future or in the in the next few months or years?
0: I want to answer this question in something related to video flow, obviously because it's something that I have noticed in my own practice of computer vision. Uh, a problem that I, a problem that I see coming time after time is the following: is that for most real world tasks there there is not a large scale label data set to help solving that problem for example let me let me explain with with examples so we have data sets for human pose estimation we have data sets annotated already for detecting cars or detecting humans in a video but we don't have large scale data sets for things like this suppose that now people interact with cars and you have you want to detect in, in a video stream, you want to detect when people are pushing cars, or when people are getting into cars, or when people are exiting cars, or being hit by cars, or placing objects in the car trunk. We don't have annotated datasets with all these actions in video, and I don't think it will be possible because the, um, the different kind of actions that you can think on how a person interacts with an object is almost infinite. So, to solve these kind of problems, you have to use Composition of models. You have to figure out, hey, what models can I use and what models can I compose together to detect these kind of actions? Uh, we obviously have our own intuition, intuition of how we solve these kind of problems, but I believe that if we find fully computational approach to discover the relationship between different visual tasks and what composition of tasks are better to solve certain kind of problems, this will be very useful because, you know, when you have model-aware relationships among, among different visual tasks, this will demand less supervision, it will use less computation, and it will behave in more predictable ways. And this is very important, predictability, especially if you are doing science, you want to be able to predict what is going on.
1: Well, I would add that, you know, in fact, you are talking about model composition and the so hyper-specialized models where each model is indeed specialized in recognizing or predicting some specific task, and then compose these models all together in order to get a much more, you know, sophisticated predictor at a and a more abstract at a more abstract level, right?
0: That's yeah, that's correct. You you got it right. Yeah.
1: So this, I mean, this is something that I've been reading for a while, and it's very interesting. I mean, it's, there is a lot of research going on, of course, and I think that such a model, as you said, indeed will demand. You know, will use less computation, but also will demand much less data. I think, Uh, and probably you know, because I hope we will never have enough data sets for uh, people who get hit by cars, because (laughs) that means that something bad (coughs) is happening. Yes, yes, that's
0: that's correct. The data data is key, and data is one. The data availability of lack of it is. I think is the main issue that is driving this research.
1: I totally agree with you, Hadil um, And that was really cool. It was, uh, it was very nice having you on the show. I'm sure that listeners of Data Science at Home appreciate your framework, VideoFlow. The coordinates uh, of the repository of GitHub will be reported in the show notes of this episode. And uh, definitely, I appreciated a lot your time to share uh, VideoFlow in this episode. Thank you very much.
0: No, you're welcome. And thank you for for having me in the show and giving me the opportunity to talk about the library and what, you know, what I think is very cool. Sure thing. Ciao. Ciao. Bye. You've been listening to Data Science at Home podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.